Hey, you. Yeah, you. If you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. I am available 24-7, 365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources. I have open ears, an open heart, and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at djmarla.jean. During today's program, you will hear AA mentioned multiple times. The individual expressing their thoughts and opinions do not reflect AA or Al-Anon as a whole. Please enjoy. Before we get started today, I would like to tell you that suicide is mentioned multiple times in this episode. If you or someone you know is going to be triggered by that, or you're struggling with suicidal ideation, or you have a plan to commit suicide, please reach out, speak with a counselor today at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Their number is one 800 273 8255. That's 1 800 273 8255. The FCC won't let me be or let me be me, so let me see. I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to all the artists whose music I used in season one. So now you get to hear me sing. It's gonna be real good. Bipolar Alcoholic I am a drug addict too Eating disorder Compulsive gambler All are welcome here We talk all things recovery You are never alone We aim to break All the stigma To educate you Experience strength And tons of hope All are welcome here We talk of things recovery You are never Cause this is authentic, where we get authentic. Cause this is authentic, where we get authentic. Cause this is authentic, where we get authentic. Yeah. Welcome, 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 welcome to the show. This is authentic, where we get authentic. Wow, that jingle is really coming together. Hi. Hi there. My name is Nicholas Thomas Fitzsimmons Vanden Havel, but most people just call me Nick. And this is my show, Authentic. Get it? It's like authentic, but with my name, Nick. Cool. Okay. And with me, as always, is my dog, Marla. Marla! Come here, baby. Say hello to all of our listeners. Let's do a duet. Up where they walk. Up where they run. Up where they play all day. In the sun. Just you and me. Then I could be. Part of your. World. All right. 
that's that's enough, Marla. Go back to chewing on Ursula's tentacles. Hey, here on Authentic, we talk about all things recovery. What do I mean by that, all things recovery? Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes, you, are in recovery from something. As for me, I'm in recovery from an eating disorder. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have bipolar disorder. Really? The list could go on and on and on and on. But fortunately for you, this show today is not about me. It is about two people. First, my guest Joe. Second, the one person whose life might be saved by what Joe has to say today. Without further ado, Joe, welcome to the show. Please introduce yourself in any way you see fit, my sir. Wonderful. Well, I might not have the intro that you had, but uh, I'm Joe. I'm really excited to be here and tell my story, my experience, strength, and hope. Let's get right into it, shall we? Sure thing. Why are you here? I'm here because I feel like I have experiences that might benefit others. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I might have some other stuff going on that I don't yet realize. I think we all do, Joe. I'm sure we do. I think we all do. <laughs> Let's get down to when you started using substances. When did you start? What age? The first time I drank, I was 15 years old. So the first time I drank, my friends and I stole a bottle of my friend's dad's Jack Daniels. We mixed it with Coke and still couldn't stomach it. Uh, I think the majority of us threw up. It wasn't a great experience. The next time I drank, I stole some peppermint schnapps from my dad's liquor cabinet and I mixed it with some Phillips vodka. Pretty gross. So I went to my friend's house to drink it. He ended up having mono. So I just drank the whole water bottle by myself. You are one classy broad. I sure threw up like a classy broad. And you drank after that. Yes. Why? Because that is the that was the best I had felt up to that point. For some reason, it felt like I had arrived. I was part of the gang. I was part of the cool people who partied. More than that, it was the experience itself was unlike any I'd ever had. It felt right to me. When I got drunk, it felt like what I'd been waiting for. Your life leading up to that first encounter with alcohol, you felt wrong. I don't know if I felt wrong. It felt like all the cards were in place. I was pretty neurotic as a kid. Nothing crazy, but I would overthink things. I would overthink everything. I would stay up very late into the night thinking about things. I had this thought in my head that if even your thoughts are a sin, then I would go to hell. Did you grow up in a religious household? I think that may be <laughs> an inference I just made. But You think? It wasn't that, it wasn't overly religious. I mean, we went to church on Sundays and Easter and Christmas. I went to Sunday school. There were no huge expectations. This neurotic side of you, could that also be called called anxiety? As I would later discover, yes, it would. <laughs> this anxiety that kept building, when you started drinking, what happened to that anxiety? It disappeared like it was never there. I never overthought things. I never worried. I just fit in. I didn't have to think about things a second time or a third time. That was it. I actually was kind of a social chameleon. Made it a point to try and be nice to everyone and to be friends with everyone because I wanted people to like me and I wanted people to accept me. I don't think that I felt like I was good enough to be accepted by other people. Why is that? Were you getting that message from your parents, from friends, from teachers? Where, where did this idea that I'm not good enough come in? I never received messaging like that from my parents. Even with grades and sports and all these things, they wanted me to work hard and they wanted me to do well, but all of these expectations were self-imposed. What did you expect from yourself? More than I could achieve. <laughs> more than is possible. More than is realistic. It was... What this is sounding like is perfectionism. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. You said you started at 15. Mm -hmm. How often were you drinking at 15? Weekend warrior type stuff. It started, I think, maybe my freshman year in high school. Okay. I would were drink. you using other substances at that time or were you just drinking? First I was drinking and then I was smoking pot. How long after you were drinking did you start smoking marijuana? Pretty shortly. What did marijuana do for you? Marijuana really opened my eyes to a different way of thinking, I thought. It was also something that I found was truly an escape. Not like drinking would. In a different way. In what way? Smoking pot I could get away with whenever I wanted to. <laughs> 
that just seemed to be more pragmatic for whenever I wanted to use it. I just enjoyed how it affected my mind. High school seemed generally pretty easy to me. Smoking weed and being a weekend warrior with drinking wasn't affecting my grades or chances at getting into college, so it seemed like a guilty free pleasure. Joe, there's a lot to be said about the argument between nature versus nurture and chemical dependency. The nature part is, oh, it runs in the family, it's in the genes, it's in my DNA. Nurture is my surroundings, what happened to me, was there a traumatic event? What do you think your chemical dependency stemmed from? Does alcoholism or drug addiction run in your family tree? Yeah, to cover the nature portion, I have alcoholism and addiction in both sides of my family. Definitely in my mom's side, it's more prevalent. She is an alcoholic in and out of recovery. She was drinking heavily when I was in high school and in middle school after she got divorced from my dad. Of course, the divorce affected me, but it affected her. Did you spend more time with your mom? I split even amounts of time between my mom and my dad. What was it like living at your mom's house? It could be really stressful. I fell into a caretaking role. She would get almost blackout drunk. She would forget every conversation we ever had. I felt like I needed to watch her and take care of her. When I confronted her, then I had to pour out her wine in moral outrage. And then I would go down to my room and smoke a bong. Joe, I can't imagine what that's like. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. No child should ever have to be the caretaker for their parent, especially witnessing something as devastating as chemical dependency. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a hard time for me, something that my friends didn't really understand. Did you talk to your friends about it? Sometimes. I found that, especially with male friends, vulnerable topics like that don't come up unless you yourself are drunk or high. That's when the guard comes down, and that's when people are able to have honest conversations about topics that are quote-unquote taboo. Um, Do you believe that today? Absolutely not. No, I can be completely honest with my friends. I have mostly male friends. I don't feel scared to talk about anything, especially with people in recovery. What was it like being at your dad's house when your parents got divorced? My dad's house was a little different. I got along really well with my dad. He also had his girlfriend move in, which was tough. A situation that you know, every kid finds himself in when their divorced parents start dating again. It's uncomfortable. You find ways to not like them, even if they're fine people. That's what I focused on when I was younger, how I didn't like her. Now I focus on how great of a person she is. Did you ever talk about what was happening over at your mom's house with your dad? I did talk about it sometimes. Mom was really bad. Literally, you would say mom was really bad? I didn't understand it for a while. I didn't realize how much she was drinking until I started drinking. I could see her drink five glasses of wine or a whole bottle and think, okay, that's normal. And then when I started drinking, I thought, holy shit, she's drinking a whole bottle of wine to herself on a fucking weeknight. Only when I started drinking did I really realize how bad it was. I didn't talk as much about it then because I didn't want to go back and forth from my mom to my dad. There's a lot of children that are put in those situations that take advantage of it, that play one against the other. And it sounds like it was kind of a tale of two parents where your mom was drinking all the time, her alcoholism was in full swing, and your dad, not a drinker, not a big drinker. Not a big drinker. He worked a lot, though. Mm. That was his thing. As I said at the very beginning, if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes... You are in recovery from something, and that very well could be a workaholic. I had a talk with him recently about it. My early memories of my dad, I was with him all weekend, every weekend. During the week, he was gone before I got up, was home after dark every night. He was home for a late dinner. Then I would mostly spend time with him on the weekends or at night. He was the president of a company, then of another company. When he got that job, he moved to Duluth. He commuted back every weekend to see us. I think it was really hard on my parents' marriage, and they told me that too. He ended up getting a job closer, but they still... 
ended up getting divorced, I did play both sides of my parents. I felt like I could sort of fall through the cracks. Well, that sounds natural. Where did you lie? You were lying in the middle of two isms. Your mom with her alcoholism and your dad with his workaholism. And you were alone. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that. The autonomy that you found when you were in Germany wasn't the start of your autonomy at all. It started long before that, didn't it? Yeah. When you went to Germany, finally it had a label. Finally it had a label. I didn't feel alone when I had weed or alcohol as a companion. Those were reliable. Those were things I could always turn to. I could always get a guaranteed effect. Those were stable things in my life that could help me feel how I wanted to feel when I wanted to feel them. That desire for control was finally satiated. There's one thing I know for sure about the isms or the disorders is that someone's left alone. Someone is alone on an island and it's not solitude. It's that underlying loneliness that a human being feels when something else is controlling the life. It's a lonely place to be, stuck between parents with isms, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what's going on with you, why you have to use or you think that's the best way to live is to use drugs and alcohol because it makes you feel normal. You don't have to worry about your mom drinking a whole bottle of wine and you having to carry her up the stairs and her not remembering conversations. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to worry about your dad just not being there. He's your dad, of course. He probably knew what was going on with you. But he wasn't physically there. He stepped up. He realized that he had a blowout with one of my sisters. I think that was addressed. After that, it seemed like he was home more. He cooked more. I know he did the best he could. I think I can say that for both of my parents. One of them was still sick with alcoholism, and one was actually in recovery from workaholism. He was getting better when I was in high school. Isn't that lovely? There was a seed planted there. You didn't know what it was at the time. You witnessed someone that addressed their issue, Mm -hmm. their workaholism, and you saw someone that didn't in your mom. And those started drifting further and further apart, didn't they? Mm -hmm. When you drifted further apart from your parents' homes, when you got to college, did you find any sort of community there that you could belong to? A new family? Well, the first week I was there, I hung out with several people I went to high school with. We weren't friends at all. We just kind of were acquaintances and someone to get drunk with. After that, several guys in my hallway said they were joining a fraternity. I thought, what fraternity? Uh, what just, were your what were your Greek fingers? Uh, Lambda, Chi, Papa, Laka, Drapa. Yeah, just a just a couple letters. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, what fraternity were you in? Uh, Delta Chi. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an airline. Anyway. Yeah. Joe's uh. <laughs> 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 mad. Joe's okay. mad at me. <laughs> All right. You joined a fraternity. So I joined a fraternity. I never felt like it was difficult to make friends at college. I felt like I sort of just fell into joining a fraternity. Several guys in my hallway went to do Rush. I went to a couple of houses. Some were douchebags. Some were, I don't know, I had nothing in common with them. And then talked to some guys at this one house. They were super nice. Then they gave me a bid, which is like an invitation to join the house. Oh my God, they want me. It felt good to be wanted. And I decided to pledge went through the pledge process first semester and went to plenty of cool parties and gross basements. It smells like dank beer and mm. sweat. Feet, feet sticking to feet. the floor. Easy to lose a tennis shoe on there. It felt good to be a part of something greater than myself. I was in sports growing up and it felt good to be part of a team or have a community or collective. So I just kind of fell into it. It was also some place where I could drink how I wanted to drink. It wasn't uncommon for someone to try and drink a case of beer. It was like a life goal. When you joined that fraternity, was it similar to that feeling you had when you first drank, I have arrived? Yeah, I think it was. It felt good to be a part of something, to be wanted someplace. It sounds like things are going great. Yeah, things are going great. And I know that they didn't continue to go great. No, no, they didn't. When does the train wreck happen, Joe? Oh boy. 
well. There's plenty of times where I blacked out, I got lost, pissed my pants, and someone brought me home. I finally made it home somewhere. One time I drank way too much, probably for your reference, 12 beers and the majority of a liter of whiskey. I was very intoxicated, talking to this person at a party, trying to be friendly. Again, I just trying to be friends with everyone, trying to be nice. I woke up in his apartment in the morning, still drunk, and he was gay. I didn't know what happened. I kind of remember what happened, but I was so drunk that I sort of just filled in the gaps. That was a really bad feeling. I thought I did something wrong. I thought, holy shit, no one can ever know about this. I can't tell anyone. I didn't for a long time. Joe, what happened? I was sexually assaulted when I was blackout drunk. When I was, my eyes were open and awake. I wasn't, I wasn't able to give consent. Yeah. What did you feel emotionally after that experience? Shame, pure shame. What did Um, you do with that shame? Did you tell anybody about the assault? No. What were you going to do with that? I was going to drink about it. I had to go to a funeral that day, actually. I was still drunk well into the day. I went to a funeral, reeked like vodka. I remember just looking at the front of the church, the person in the casket, and I thought, I wish I was them. I so wished I was dead that day. It really crushed me, and I wasn't going to tell anyone about it ever. Again, loneliness Mm -hmm. seems to be a common denominator in your story. What is so beautiful about you sharing that is you are letting one person know. Hell, who knows how many people have gone through the same thing. You are telling people, one person, that you are not alone. You're sitting here living and breathing, which means you are in recovery from sexual assault because you're addressing it. You're talking about it. That is a form of recovery. The most basic form of recovery is still living and breathing. There are various degrees, if you will, of recovery. And this degree of recovery is not only commendable, it's I'm almost envious of your vulnerability. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, I wanted to share it. First of all, thanks, Nick. I wanted to share it because I thought for so long that I could never tell anyone about it, that no one could ever know that I would die with this secret, with this thing that that made me feel so bad about myself and so dirty. What did you think at that time? What did you think was going to happen if you told someone? That all of a sudden my sexuality is in question. My whole life thinking, I feel pretty secure being heterosexual. All of a sudden, nope. You have things to think about, like, are you gay? Did you invite that experience into your life? Would it be different if you had consented to it? Definitely in question of that, but I thought no one can know about that. If I'm gay, then that's going to alienate me from other people. I'll lose friends. Had you ever questioned your sexuality before that experience? No, not really. There were definitely certain moments that I thought, am I gay? Eh, probably not. Actually, oh, I was um, <laughs> I was assaulted again, too. It's like molested by one of my best friends. When was that? That was after this. You know, the fight, flight, or freeze. And I froze. He thought I was blacked out drunk, basically. And started touching me inappropriately. And I thought a couple things. One, has he? F- how long has he felt like this? Two, how could he do this to me? And what should I do? Should I fight him? Should I run away? And I froze. I was too afraid. Who's my best friend? What was your intoxication level when that was happening, the second assault? It wasn't as much. I had woken up from being passed out from drinking and smoking weed. He was just staying at my house for the weekend, you know, or splitting the bed, which I didn't really have any problem with then I woke up to him doing that and then I wondered you know I'd been blacked out drunk so many times so many times almost every other time I drank I was blacked out and I wondered how many other times it had happened and that's a question I don't want the answer to what sort of feeling does that give you that uncertainty of what did happen what could have happened while you were blacked out anxiety once again shame and disgust what does it feel like It feels like sick to your stomach. It feels like a pit in my stomach, a sense of unease that I can't shake no matter how hard I try, unless I smoke weed, drink something, take a pill, snort something, unless I get high on something, I'm not getting rid of that feeling. Substances were the answer to everything, weren't they? Yeah, they worked really well. I saw them as my medicine. When did it stop being your medicine and start being your poison? Was there a catalyst moment? I was 
in school. I think it was my junior year now, although I was behind because I had left for that mental health outpatient. So this is after I get fired from my job, drinking every weekend, but now I'm doing benders. I'm drinking Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday's withdrawal day. Sunday is when I smoke weed and I lay in the bathtub and I get the shakes and everything feels fucked up. That's every weekend now. And now it's not just Thursday night, it's Wednesday night, it's Monday night, it's Tuesday night. Now it's drinking almost every night and doing these benders. So after one especially, especially hard bender, I was withdrawing and having a lot of suicidal ideation, but this time I had a plan. My plan was to go in my shower, use my razor, slit my wrists and my arteries, and just bleed out in the shower. I was in in the bathroom looking at the razor blade on the floor, and I went back to my room, just curled up in the fetal position. I had been not answering my family. My dad's worried sick about me, so he shows up at my apartment. My roommate lets him in. He finds me crumpled on the floor. He takes me to the hospital. I do a a safety check and then I go home with him and it's when I moved back home with my dad. I knew I needed to stop drinking but I didn't know I was an alcoholic. Joe, Um, why didn't you kill yourself? I couldn't do it to my family, honestly. Like, Staring at the razor blade on the floor, what was going through your head? I felt alone. I felt scared. I didn't do it, I think, partly because of fear, just self-preservation. I was scared as fuck. And then I just kind of withdrew. I decided to stop feeling, and that's the state I was in when I was in my room. I don't know why I didn't do it. I'm glad I didn't. As am I. Yeah. This idea of fear has this sort of redundancy that I've noticed in people that have addiction, mental health issues. It's this fear of fear. It compounds itself. It's like a synergistic effect. And then symptoms begin. Symptoms can come in so many different forms. It can show up like an eating disorder, drinking, using drugs, cutting yourself, multitude of ways. There's this fear of fear and then a soother to relieve me of my fear. However, fear is still there. Not only did I start with fear of fear and then start drinking or fill in your blank to get rid of that fear. Now I have fear about what I actually did while alleviating that fear while soothing that fear. So many people I talk to have what they call a jumping off place where they couldn't imagine their lives with or without their addiction and they wish for the end. Your vulnerability talking about your wishing for your end is invaluable. Thanks. I appreciate it. I know I'm not the only one that's felt that way or you're might God feel that way. damn now. right you're not. <laughs> Joe, it sounds like you are about to get some help for your shit. Yes. You didn't kill yourself. No. Nope. You're curled up in a ball and daddy came and saved you. <laughs> Honestly, though, your yeah. dad came. Yeah. He saw you curled up in a ball and took you to the hospital. The hospital and then took you back to his house. Yeah. Once I move into his house, he doesn't want me to drink. I'm not supposed to drink. Two weeks into this, uh, maybe it was one week, (laughs) honestly. I go to this party with the intention of not drinking, right? So I'm there. People keep saying, have a drink, have a drink. Why don't you have a shot with us? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. Well, there's this girl that I'm interested and she's there and she says why don't you have a drink Uh, okay (laughs) so I had one shot and then said fuck it if I'm having one shot I might as well have a couple and then I got drunk and then I hooked up with this girl I slept over and went back home in the morning before my dad got up that started it again next night I thought well I drank yesterday I'll have like one drink that lasted for two months every day I was getting drunker than the last day ended up blacking out and passing out every night the end of two months I got an ultimatum that was from my dad if you don't get help and don't go to treatment you can't live here anymore I thought I'd have one last hurrah that night I got really drunk blackout drunk I overslept as to when I was supposed to call and get my intake assessment and my dad and I got in a shoving match he was actually shoving me I remember how I felt because I didn't feel anything I felt completely numb and withdrawn I was so out of touch with my emotions with my spirituality with my own physical health that I just felt like a shell that got pushed I didn't do shit I realized how fucked up that was and that was a rough day I called Plymouth Hazelden youth facility talked to him over the phone about what was happening and they said yeah yeah your dad told us a little bit about this seems like you belong here (laughs) okay I'm going to stop you right there because Joe you just gave me a perfect segue into our second portion of the show 
Yes. Joe is about to get some help. We'll be right back. I just can't let you go. Lord knows that I've tried to. You said I was the only one. No one likes being like to. You made this mess and left me with the pieces. Back to authentic, where Joe is most certainly getting authentic. Joe, at the end of our experience portion of the show, you were starting to talk about going to inpatient. Yeah. That sounds like you're getting some help, bro. I'm getting some help. All right, let's explore that. What did that look like when you were given that ultimatum by your dad? Looked like my only option, basically. I needed a place to stay. I had zero money. I was going through change drawers to pay for gas to get to school. So I'd put about a dollar of gas in my car. I calculated the MPGs that my car had. I would put just enough in that I could make it to school and back. If I happened to get $10 or borrow some money from my dad, I would buy a bag of weed or alcohol. Most of that I'd stolen from the basement bar. Anyway, did my intake over the phone. They said, yeah, I think you belong here. That's weird. Thought I fooled you, but okay, I guess I'll go. What sort of questions were they asking you? How often are you drinking? What drugs have you tried? How often have you done those in the past? The reasons why you're drinking. Is it an escape? I mean, kind of an escape. It was those type of questions. And I had filled one of those out at my last job. I had even fudged my answers to make it seem like I wasn't chemically dependent. I still qualified as being chemically dependent. Even when I tried to beat the system, I failed. It definitely gave me a little to think about. I was honestly clueless. I came into inpatient so non-aware of my own issues. Didn't know what alcoholism was. I didn't know what addiction was. I know what it looked like on my mom. I didn't understand it with me. I remember going to parties, bringing just a flask, and I said, okay, I'll just drink this. Invariably, I would drink the flask, and it was never enough. I would make friends with someone, just kind of a vapid relationship, and drink their alcohol. (laughs) And I did that at almost every party, and it worked great for me. Well, not so great for me. An inpatient was sent into sort of a detox wing for the first night. I was definitely in denial of my own alcoholism until I started going through withdrawals. I had a lot of post-acute withdrawal symptoms, which were hand shaking, rapid breathing, rapid heart rate, or really low breathing, shallow. I just didn't feel right. It was really unsettling. All of a sudden, I went from being sort of a shell of a person, uh, really numb in every aspect, to feeling everything. All of my emotions came back. I could go from laughing to crying in the blink of an eye. I didn't get that I was an alcoholic until I talked to other people in there. It was my first time in treatment, but for a lot of people, it was their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, even tenth time in treatment. I remember talking to one guy, his name's Matt. I thought I was a bad person because of my drinking and my drug use. And he said, you're not a bad person. You're just an alcoholic. It was really simple, but it was it was really profound for me. He said, it's not your fault. That was huge for me. I remember just breaking down and thinking, 
Oh my God. There's other people with the same problem in here. And instead of a fraternity or a certain friend group, this is where I belong. I'm in the right place. And I really believed it. I experienced a lot of joy in there. Most people really needed help. They were in the same position and I could finally relate to someone and feel understood. I was able to take time away from school and from my life. I was so hesitant to go in, but I had literally nothing to lose. You know, I was failing all my classes already. I had no money. I wasn't going to have a place to live. I actually dropped out of school on the way to treatment on my phone. That's like how disconnected I was from reality. Did you view this going to treatment in any way as another escape? I didn't at the time, maybe a little bit. It sort of felt liberating to just throw my hands up and say, fuck it, why not? <laughs> I have literally nothing to lose. I wasn't sure if it would help me or not, but it seemed like, you know, the only option at that point. What specifically in treatment allowed you to work through your stuff? Is that why you were there to work through your stuff or did you just want a vacation? No, I wanted to work through my stuff. I didn't know exactly what my stuff was. How did you find that out? I found it out through the programming they had there. It was 12-step oriented. We would work through uh, step one, so to speak. A lot of people were in the same position I was in. They were in denial of alcoholism. What is step one? Step one, uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. How did you perform or take step one? It was all the costs and consequences of my use. A lot of people are in denial, and because I was in denial, I needed to write down the financial costs of my use. How much money did I spend on alcohol and drugs? Other consequences. Who did I hurt? Who did I isolate? Who did I alienate? Who did I harm in any way? Those were definitely put on there too. It was to solidify the state that my life was in. It was to clear me from the insanity that I was experiencing. And that insanity was, you don't have a problem you need to drink, you need to get high, because that's your medicine. On this program, I like to talk about SPEM. Sure. And SPEM <laughs> is just an acronym for spirituality, physicality, emotions, and mentality. Where were you at spiritually when you first came to inpatient treatment? God is dead. Where were you at physically? A withdrawing, withering shell. Where were you emotionally? Numb and sad. Numb and sad. If I wasn't numb, I was pretty sad. And what was your mental status when you came into inpatient treatment? All over the place and nowhere good. What was your spirituality looking like when you left inpatient treatment? Finally starting to form. I was open. I had been open before, but in different ways. It looked like I'm here for a reason. I survived despite everything that happened to me. There were plenty of times where I could have died, either by my own hand or by my drug use or by the situations I put my myself in or I was put in. I absolutely could have died and I didn't. I couldn't explain that and I couldn't explain why there were so many people in the world that were struggling with alcoholism and addiction. I got an opportunity to change. I got an opportunity to get better. It seemed like people were on my side and wanted me to recover. How did you improve physically over the course of your five weeks in inpatient treatment? I gained... 20 pounds? 20 good pounds, mm, yeah. <laughs> love me some good pounds. That's right. Yeah, they feed you biscuits and gravy a lot. Yeah, they try and fatten everyone up, which is probably good. Emotionally, where were you at? Emotionally, I was still working on it. I had finally been able to talk to a therapist several times there, talk to a psychiatrist. It was kind of deciding what route, if any, I wanted to take with mental health. I was aware of it. Things were starting to improve. Were you addressing that emotional piece earnestly at this point as you had never done before? Yeah. Why? Because I wanted it. I wanted to feel better. I didn't just want to stop drinking. I wanted to feel better. I wanted to live. Where were you at mentally? Mentally, I thought, what next? Okay, so I'm in treatment for five weeks. I must be cured. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what was next. I thought that life was going to go back to somewhat similarly as it had been going before, right? I was going to get right back into school full time, move back to the U of M. Maybe I I'd join my fraternity again, probably hang out with all my old friends, where the main activity was passing a bong around a circle and watching kung fu movies. But I'd just watch the kung fu movies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't smoke that bong. Little did I know, none of that would happen. I was recommended to move into a sober house. I had no idea what a sober house was 
before. My friend moved into one who was discharged two days before me, so I decided to move into the same one. That was a great decision. The house was mostly guys my own age, early 20s. Actually, I was still 21 at that point. Everyone was in their early 20s. Everyone was in the same mindset. People wanted recovery and people wanted to change. We went to meetings four or five times a week, smoked cigarettes, we drank coffee, and then I went to outpatient treatment. I went to day treatment for a number of months where it felt like a regurgitation of what I learned in inpatient. There was a group setting where we could talk about things. Life outside of that little bubble called treatment is a lot different. Temptation is there. You know, I live down the street from a liquor store. How can a sober house be by a liquor store? Well, <laughs> they're everywhere. So I got over it, but it was dealing with the little challenges that came up while my mind was still healing. Would you say that making the decision to go to that sober house after treatment is the sole reason why you stayed clean and sober at that time? Yes. Yeah. I know I couldn't have done it alone. It would have been extremely difficult to do it not not in a setting where everyone was working on recovery. I've been in sober houses or groups where people weren't all that interested in it. In this particular moment, it really made a difference. It was one of those life-changing moments. It sounds like you're getting a lot of help. Yes. I would like to know what wasn't helpful. What wasn't helpful about treatment? It felt like it was very structured, which is good. There was a portion of treatment where you had to hold other peers accountable for their actions. For addict behavior, minor indiscretions, like not getting up on time or missing part of your chore, or <laughs> I can't even remember. Why wasn't that helpful? I think it wasn't helpful, or I didn't see it helpful as, at the time because it started unnecessary drama within the unit when you got held accountable from your peer. Oh, so you mean life being very lifelike? <laughs> Yeah. Actions and consequences. Right. Damn. I didn't like those. So it was more so the mental state you were in at the time. There was this microcosm. There was like this compressed ball of recovery going on and every little thing would set somebody off. What wasn't helpful about being in the sober house? Sober houses are really, can be really sensitive. I mean, it's a challenge to live with nine other people. <laughs> the first house I was at, I shared a bathroom with... I think eight guys, which was not ideal. That was stressful. The general shitty layout of, of the house. My house manager was a hard ass. If you didn't make your three meetings, you were gonna get your ass chewed, guaranteed, no matter who you were. That accountability made me hit my meetings and it made me, wow. these are 12 step meetings. Those made me hit my meetings, hold other people accountable to going to meetings and to recover. Did you ever explore any other form of recovery, some sort of sustainable program outside of 12-step because they do exist and they do save lives just like 12-step programs. Did you ever venture into those realms? I've had limited exposure to those. I did go to Smart Recovery. I really liked the message. They had a huge focus on mental health, sort of that dual diagnosis of mental health and addiction, which I thought was really helpful. Only attended one meeting supporting a friend who is going. I think it's a great option in addition to 12 steps or rather than 12 steps. I also went to meditation meetings that weren't necessarily 12-step affiliated, focused on meditation. They have them at certain meditation centers and Zen centers. That was very helpful in fomenting my own spirituality. Out of all those experiences of avenues of recovery, were any of those ever traveled alone? No, <laughs> never. Why do you think that is? Maybe fear is part of it. I was scared to check things out. My recovery doesn't exist in a bubble. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. I recover with other people. We recover. The only reason I realized I was an alcoholic was because I heard the experience of other alcoholics and it made me realize that we had something in common, that they found a solution and had a totally different life than they had before. What would you say to someone that tells you that they can recover all on their own and they don't need anybody's help? You're full of shit. Really? That's blunt. <laughs> I like no, it. I would never say that to someone in person, but 
I would say think hard about it. I had an illusion that I could do everything on my own or that I had done a lot of things on my own in the past. If I really thought about it, I realized how many people had actually helped me along the way. Since you're not doing it alone, how do you help others? At first, I helped others by volunteering at meetings. I put away chairs. I made coffee. I volunteered for service positions while I was still working the 12 steps. I was there for my friends. If someone needed to talk, I would always talk. Eventually, when I got through the 12 steps, I decided to sponsor people. What's a sponsor? A sponsor is someone who goes through the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever 12-step program you work, go through the 12 steps with you, work them to completion. There's someone who you can call when you're having a difficult time. Basically, someone who can help guide you to find long-term sobriety. How do you wish to be supported in this fellowship that you describe? I just want someone there for me, someone to listen. I want to hear different perspectives. I don't want to be trapped in my own echo chamber. I want to hear the truth, whatever that may be. I pick a sponsor and I pick friends in recovery that have something that I want. If they're at peace, they have a sense of serenity, they have joy in their life. Those are all things that I want in my life. Those are the people I choose to hang around with. Relapse is a part of your story. We discussed that before we started talking tonight. Who helped you when you relapsed? My sponsor and my friends and my home group. How did they know you had relapsed? I told them. Why? Because you could have just smoked weed a couple of times or had a drink and been like, oh, well, shit, that was fun. I uh, probably shouldn't have done that, but nobody knows. Nobody was there. I just did it all by myself. Whatever. Nobody's got to know. <laughs> just this one time. Of course, that temptation's there. I was so sick of lying to myself, not even to other people. Of course, I don't like to lie to other people, and that's you know, not something I try and do. I was so sick of lying to myself for so long about this glaring problem that I just could not get myself to understand or accept. And I lied about a lot of other things. My perspective was that I was a victim in life. Sometimes the world was out to get me. All this shit happened to me. Why me? I really went full circle. My perspective changed on a lot of things. What were the reactions of the people in your fellowship when you did come clean? No pun intended. Actually, fuck it. <laughs> pun intended. When you did come clean with them about your relapse, what was their reaction? It's almost disappointingly non-reactive. It was <laughs> <laughs> a very interesting way of putting it. It's beautiful. People, relapse is a part of many people's stories. All I felt was acceptance. All I felt was great. What else is new? <laughs> I felt a lot of warmth, a lot of support. People congratulated me when I had a few days sober. Again, when I got 30 days sober. In the past, the same thing happened when I relapsed and I got a year again. There's a saying called, we don't shoot our wounded. And that's so important because I was feeling shame. I was really nervous to go back, but I'm so glad I did. I was welcomed with open arms. You've relapsed recently, haven't you? I sure have. What number relapse has this been for you since you went to inpatient treatment? This is my second. Why have you relapsed a second time? I got complacent, one, and I was looking for answers. Complacent about what? Uh, about my recovery. I define sober and recovery as different things. You cannot drink and still be an asshole, for example. I define recovery as working a program, whatever you choose it to be. It doesn't have to be 12 steps. Whatever you choose it to be. Does it have to be a program? I guess not. What do you think is the one common thread that has to be you can't just do it alone. You have to ask others for help. It doesn't have to be God, but you need to find something other than yourself that you can rely on and that you can turn to for help. As far as the 12-step program that you're working is concerned, is that a God program? You mentioned the word God a few times. I would say not in the way that one might think of God. How would you explain it then? It's literally whatever you want. When I first started, it was God equals group of drunks. It was the people sitting next to me in an AA meeting. It was people that I had heard their stories, which were far more extreme than mine. And they'd recovered. They'd found peace. They'd found serenity. They'd found joy. They'd found things that I wanted. It proved to me that I could rely on these people for help. I couldn't do it alone. Over time, that evolved. My higher power still evolves. It's not necessarily just a group of drunks anymore. So it's not actually God. God is just a word that you use. It's a higher 
higher power. It's a higher power. Yeah. As long as it's not you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works, right? Yes. You don't do it alone and you need to find a higher power. That's what the 12 step program is pushing. Is that right? That's right. As long as you have a higher power that isn't you to give your shit to, mm-hmm. something to believe in, something to have faith in, something to have trust in, as long as it isn't you. That sounds pretty simple. Yeah. What would you say to someone that has relapsed and is afraid to come back to whatever recovery fellowship they belong to? Just act on it. Don't think about it. Just act on it. If you have that sliver of motivation to go to your old home group or go to a random meeting and be brave, raise your hand and say, I have 24 hours or I'm still drinking. I'm struggling. However much time you have, you don't even have to be sober. All you need is a desire to stop drinking. I had a desire to stop drinking and I was welcome back. The only requirement for your membership in this 12-step program is just a desire to stop drinking. You don't even have to be sober. No, I could have been drunk. Yeah. <laughs> those are, uh, those, that entrance exam is pretty easy. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Joe, how do you wish to be supported now that you've made it back to your sober tribe? You've relapsed a couple of times. You've strung together a few years here, a year there. How do you wish to be supported now that you've quote unquote gone back out and done some more experimentation and come back with the realization that I have this thing. I have this affliction. Mm -hmm. I have this illness. I have this disease. Whatever you want to call it, you got the addiction, boy. (laughs) You got the A word. Damn right. How do you wish to be supported in your recovery community? I just want the same support as everyone else. I want to hear people's experience. I want to be able to talk to people. I want to be able to relate to people. I just want to be a person in a meeting getting help. What does a supportive voice sound like in your meetings? A supportive voice sounds like speaking their truth and their experience. It doesn't matter how prophetic you sound, how many years or weeks or months or days. It doesn't matter. I just want to hear the truth from people. When I hear that and I hear people's experience, it gives me hope. What was that word you just used? Hope. Hope! <laughs> Thank you for the segue, Joe. You're, You're welcome. You're fucking killing it tonight, man. <laughs> we are going to take one more break. We will be right back with Joe. And he's going to give us some hope. Is that good? Yeah. Was that a good one? That was good. some help yes i'm so jazzed to talk about hope favorite section because we really get to talk about solutions we get to talk about solutions we get to really dig into breaking stigma even though we've broken a ton of stigma already let's really let's smash it home hell yeah smash the stigma shall we hell yeah what do you do today as in today what did you do today to further and nourish your sobriety today since i relapsed my sponsor and i came up with things I want in my life, things I want to change. So every morning to try and work on my spirituality, I say, please. And that's all I say. I don't necessarily say, please, God, help me. Sometimes I do say, please, universe, 
help me help someone, help me be the best person I can be today and just do my best. You're not asking for a Lamborghini? Uh, not every day. I'd ask for a houseboat. <laughs> I've always wanted to live on a houseboat. Oh, I'd love a houseboat. Damn. Someday. Yeah. Someday. We'll build it together. Joe, how have your relationships improved with your family? My relationships with my family were more broken than I thought, and they've changed drastically. I didn't realize I had been isolating. I alienated my family from me by not showing up to things, by not being there, by not being a good brother and a good son. That changed. I made amends to both of my sisters and my mom and my dad. So that looked like taking a deep look at how my relationship was with them in the past. So where I had been wrong, where I'd hurt them, and what I needed to own up to. That looked like not showing up to things. I tried to do my amends. So I would say all the things I did wrong. Then I would ask them, is there anything I missed? I would say, I really value this relationship. I want to change. I want it to be better. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to to change. So you didn't say you were sorry? I probably snuck it in there at one point, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) out of habit. Many addicts have rendered the statement, I'm sorry, completely meaningless. I know I did. Even though when I made my amends to my parents, I always preceded an amend with, I know I may have rendered the term I'm sorry meaningless. So if you don't want to hear that while I'm making this proper amends to you, please say so now. Not one person who said don't say sorry to me. (laughs) Yeah, people still want to hear I'm sorry. I mean, so I still say it. I don't use it as often as I did. I used it as a filler word a lot. I felt like I was always fucking up. And I often was fucking up. Maybe it was warranted. Now, I don't just say it and still fuck up. I mean, of course I still fuck up. But what do you do when you do fuck up? I own up to it right away. I apologize. I do my best to change. I really am honest with myself when I think an apology is warranted and when I think change is warranted. No, on the flip side of that, it's also not saying sorry when I don't need to. Having a sense of, am I saying sorry because I'm insecure or I'm fearful or I feel less than or am I saying sorry because I actually hurt someone and they need to hear that. Outside of your 12-step program that you're working, what are you putting out into the universe? How are you helping others? You've said that multiple times. I just want to help others. I go out and help somebody else. What are you actually doing to help others and how does that affect you once you help someone else? I think right now I don't sponsor anyone because I need to work the steps again. And I'm talking about outside of your recovery bubble. To me, it's being a good friend, helping where I can. That shows up more often than I think. Random people needing help with something (laughs) out of the blue. Like a guy is outside of his condo and he's struggling to drag a mattress up. He has three flights of stairs. So I'm like, hey, do you need help carrying your mattress up the stairs? And he's like, uh, yeah, that'd be cool. Are you secretly hoping he says no? And then when he says yes, you're like, oh, fuck. Uh, yeah, I mean a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) You made the offer. He says, yes, I need help. And then I fucking do it. You fucking do it. (laughs) If I'm looking to do it, these things show up. When I put that into the universe that helped me help someone, I see things that I normally wouldn't see. My mindset is that of if someone needs help with something, no matter how small or large or whatever, I'm generally willing to help someone. And that could be just giving someone a ride somewhere. Oftentimes it's being a good friend. It's listening when someone needs to vent, reaching out to people I haven't heard from that I think are lonely, especially now. I'm trying to reach out to people more. I realize that people are isolated and cut off from human connection that I need and I desire. And I think other people do too. We have a little experiment here, a little mental experiment here. Sure. If you remove the 12 steps and your fellowship completely from your life, they don't exist. How would you tell someone how to get help? Someone that is struggling through the exact same things you have. Chemical dependency, depression, anxiety, Mm -hmm. sexual assault. How does one get help 
12 steps don't exist. Because uh, you called that your solution. Let's say magically, poof, the 12 steps never existed. It's tough to answer that because my recovery has been so rooted in that. Well, then what is at the root of the 12 steps? At the root of the 12 steps is one, finding your truth, finding out what the actual truth is, not the lies that your mind has constructed, that you're a shitty person or that this is just a phase or I'm sad, so I'm drinking, I'm happy, so I'm drinking or I'm using. All of that is, to me, false. How do I find the truth? That truth that you're talking about, how do I find that? I find it with the help of others. I think the first thing to do is ask for help. It's calling the addiction hotline, telling a close friend or a family member if you're comfortable with it. It is absolutely reaching out. I needed a life raft. It felt like I was drowning. I think a lot of people have that feeling. Reach out. Someone's going to be there. Speaking of someone being there, <laughs> I offer support to anyone listening to this program. If you identify with something in today's program or you know someone that identifies with something mentioned in today's program, please, 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 please reach out to me at that email address mentioned at the beginning of the show, authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. Reach out. So you talked about your suicidal ideas and you talked about a near suicide attempt. So many people that suffer with mental illness, that suffer with addiction, that suffer with any sort of hardship, any sort of malady, any sort of difficulty, sometimes it feels like the only way out, the only way to alleviate that pain is to stop living. Why do you think you are not one of those suicide statistics? I don't know. I very well could have been. I just had people in my life that intervened at the right moment and guided me to a place where I could get help. How do you explain that? It's honestly unexplainable or inexplainable. Rather. Inexplicable. <laughs> inexplicable. It was a good try. So I fucked up twice. Gone done fucked up, boy. <laughs> I can't explain why I had it. I just feel an immense sense of gratitude. I know that if circumstances were different, I wouldn't be talking to you here. I'm so grateful for that. My life has changed so much. It looks so much different than what I thought it would be and so much better. Living with gratitude seems to be a common thread with people that have found a fellowship in which they can share a common peril with people that have gotten sober, gotten clean, gotten help, or whatever it is that they are struggling with. Why is it so important to be thankful when all this shitty stuff has happened to you, as you said earlier? <laughs> right, because that's literally how how my brain was wired. My synapses were firing to say, this is fucked up. You should drink about this. You should get high about this. My brain was wired towards negativity. I've always considered myself uh, an optimist, sometimes to a fault. Really, being grateful changes the way I perceive the world. When I'm not thinking in gratitude, I tend to devolve into thinking everything shit. It's really easy to notice all the injustice, all of the pain, all the suffering in the world or in your own life. I think I'm of maximum service and helpfulness to other people when I'm grateful and I can talk to people in a place of gratitude and optimism. I am so grateful that you got vulnerable and talked about your experience with sexual assault. What do you want to say to someone who has experienced that, that has not talked about it, thinks they cannot talk about it, thinks they will never just, no, I will never talk about this. It's only hurting you. That was the case for me. I think people will find their voice when it's time to find their voice, but I really encourage people to talk about it. It's not something that goes away. Those feelings of shame continue. They really affected and still sometimes affect my mental health and my well-being. I didn't do anything wrong, yet it is still my responsibility to help myself. And that goes for any type of trauma that people have experienced and addiction and all of this, all of the isms. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to recover. You know, you deserve to recover. This thought always crosses my mind. When I talk to people about their recovery, they say it's really not about me, it's about we. It takes a 
village in order to find lasting and most importantly meaningful sobriety or recovery from whatever it is that you have survived that you are in recovery from for people in your boat take medication Mm -hmm. go to 12-step meetings talk to other people help other people do you do therapy i don't yet you're open to it yeah i'm open to it i tried it before but i could be honest up to a certain point because i was still drinking something i wanted to protect but i'm open to it and i realized that my own experience with trauma isn't gonna go away it's easier now i still see it impacting my relationships friendships and romantic relationships pretty sure you've smashed just about every (laughs) stigma possible there is stigma that surrounds going to therapy there is stigma around taking mental health medication there is stigma around going to 12-step meetings there is stigma about talking about your side of the street and actually trying to clean it up and have it be meaningful, not just doing something to please someone else. Why is it so important for you to embody those things? Why is it so important for you to come on this program and say, hey, I take mental health medication. Hey, I've done therapy, and you know what? I'm open to doing more therapy. Hey, I go to 12-step programs. Hey, I can't do this alone. Hey, 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 why? Because I wish I would have heard me talk in the past. I wish I would have heard this and thought, maybe I could do that because I really needed that and I didn't have it for a long time. I didn't think I'd ever have it. Maybe, just maybe, there's a reason why you were not allowed or couldn't hear yourself talk. Maybe, just maybe, you were meant to have all those experiences. Maybe you were meant to have an alcoholic mom. Maybe you were meant to be sexually assaulted. Maybe you were meant to go through this journey so you can help one person. I hope so. I think you've certainly done that today. Thanks, Dan. No, Joe, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Your vulnerable and unflappable testimony, I know, has helped someone. You have saved a life here tonight. Joe, what do you want your legacy as a human being to be? Mm, I want to add more to the stream of life. I just want to add more positivity, if it's possible. Like, that's it's like the only thing I want. Damn. It's so basic that it is just all-encompassing. And it's got this beautiful generality to it. The spectrum of possibilities is infinite. I like that. All right, Joe. (laughs) We've come to the end of our show. Thank you so much for being here tonight, Joe. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really great. We talked earlier about a sign-off line. I know I have the best one in the business. However, (laughs) I want to see if you can top me. What you got? Um, You deserve recovery. I like it. Keep it vague. (laughs) Joe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for listening to Authentic today. It's always a pleasure to have you. If you or someone you know or someone you know that knows someone that knows someone you know or doesn't know, any of those, I'll figure that one out. If you know someone that is struggling with this, please don't hesitate to reach out at authentic1 at gmail.com. Please remember that you are not alone. Remember that there is help. Remember that there is hope. Be good to yourselves. It's important.